0: Congrats, because you found the podcast where rational thinkers, they choose to live in truth. We call it the far middle. Let's get this episode started, shall we? Greetings to all of you constant listeners. And if you're living down under in Australia, I hope you are thoroughly enjoying your summer. Uh, The weather sort of tends to suck up here in western Pennsylvania this time of year, but it'll get better. And here's a quote that serves as a bit of inspiration to the far middle ethos. If something is important enough, even if the odds are against you, you should still do it. Now, you know who said that? A free thinker for sure, Elon Musk. And I don't agree at all with the business model of his EV and solar endeavors. And I don't agree with more than a few of his positions on things. But how can you not be intrigued with him and respect his willingness to say and do what he thinks? Need more of that in society today for sure. Sports dedication marches on with the themes that we've been employing for a few months now on the farm middle of greatness during the competition and game, but also greatness away from the game or the field or the court. Great Americans, great human beings, noteworthy for history beyond sports history. All this leads us to our first admiral in farm middle dedication history, formerly known as David Robinson. And of course, he played for the Spurs in San Antonio in the NBA from 1989 after he left the Naval Academy and fulfilled two years of uh, service in the military up until 2003. In the Admiral, he did it all on the court. Ten-time All-Star. He was an MVP, two-time champ, um, won two gold medals in the Olympics, 92 and 96. He's in the Hall of Fame and he is on the 50th and the 75th anniversary all-time NBA teams. Basically one of the greatest centers in both college and NBA history. So how about that? But those reasons, they aren't the main reason that he is our dedication today, although I'll admit they don't hurt. David Robinson is first and foremost a great American and a great person. His dad was in the Navy. That sort of paved the way for David to attend Annapolis after he destroyed the SATs. And he wanted to major in math. So let me repeat both of those things again. He destroyed the SATs and he wanted to major in math at the Naval Academy. Again, this is a rare and talented individual. Mr. Robinson is indeed. So labeling him as simply a basketball player sells his accomplishments short. Speaking of heights, uh, get this. He was five nine as a junior in high school, but he ended up being six six as a senior when he graduated high school. Now, I never made it to 5'9". But anyway, Robinson's growth spurts, they got really interesting beyond high school because by his second year at the academy, he hit seven foot, which would make him ineligible for naval service on a ship. In other words, he likely wouldn't have ever been admitted to the naval academy if he grew sooner, which is nuts. Now, Robinson, like I said, he was uh, selected by the Spurs with the first overall pick in 87. But the Spurs had to wait two years because Robinson fulfilled his active duty obligation with the Navy. Because of his height, the Secretary of Navy allowed Robinson to become a staff officer in the Civil Engineering Corps, and he provided his two years of service at the Naval Submarine Base in Georgia. And I'll let you in on a secret. He wasn't technically ever an admiral in the Navy, despite his nickname, but he did end up being a lieutenant. And what he learned about teamwork in the academy and in the Navy, that translated to how he performed as a pro in the NBA. He had a great relationship with Tim Duncan when the other phenom joined the team, and Robinson willingly reduced his own role in the team's offense to accommodate a younger star so that the team would have a better chance of winning, and they did. Now, how often do you see that in today's me, 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 I, I, I athlete mentality, not often. And he has done great work with charter schools. He and his wife founded the Carver Academy in San Antonio in 2001. To date, the Robinsons have donated more than $11 million to that school. So you know how we on the far middle feel about education and how students these days need help. David Robinson put his money and his actions where his mouth was. Yeah, you just don't get better quality of person than David Robinson, And if more of us are like him, it's a winning formula for the nation and for society. So let's at least do our best and try to emulate him with our own tailored set of actions off the court that we professionally perform on, whatever that might be, and leave the basketball court moves in the paint to him. Episode 141 is dedicated to David Robinson, the Admiral. Talking about the Navy reminds me of the uh, commercial or maybe commercials, because I think there were different variations of it from back in the day for armed forces recruiting. I don't know if you remember those or not if you're old enough, they went army, navy, air force, marines. And then there was a tagline at the end of how it's a great place to start. And certainly that was the case for the admiral. Our armed forces, they exist, of course, to protect us from threats from abroad. Threats that seem to grow every day when you look around the world or you read the news. But our current leaders, they will have us believe that the only existential threat to America The single biggest threat is not a foreign adversary, but instead we should fear most the weather, as in climate change. So today's David Robinsons, they're increasingly not being asked to prepare for, say, a threat from China, but instead to abide by the creed of the climate alarmist movement. And instead of worrying about weapons deterrence efficacy, our military leaders, they're instructed to worry instead about the carbon footprint of the weapon system. And that serves as a nice connection to our main topic for this episode, which is the second far middle installment of a trilogy of videos that I just published this month after the COP28 meetings wrapped in the Middle East at the end of last year. And COP28, you'll recall, was a party where over 70,000 of the self-important spend weeks, this time in the desert, talking and talking and talking, and lecturing, and lecturing, and lecturing, and preaching, and preaching, and preaching with no tangible action. Now, the video trilogy, which I feel rivals that of the Lord of the Rings series, it can be viewed on nickdiolius.com and on YouTube if you search for the Nick Diulius channel on YouTube. And that's, again, N-I-C-K, D is in David, E-I-U-L-I-I-S. So if you search for that, you'll find it, and you can subscribe to it if you choose the channel And you'll see those three installments of the videos that discuss how a rational thinker should approach the topic of climate change, and perhaps more importantly, climate change policies. So like last week, please give them a view. And for this episode of The Far Middle, let's focus on the points made in the second video of the series. And we can hit the third and final video next week's Far Middle. Now, the main purpose or theme running across all three videos was to be bold in today's increasingly silly environment, which is to say to assess climate change and climate change policies as a rational thinker would. I know it's so logical of an approach that it stands to be ridiculed by the extreme left or attacked by high priests as heresy to the religion, denier, which is the type of opportunity the far middle loves to speak to. So let's proceed then. The second video focused on what the elites in the expert classes are forcing upon society and economies when it comes to the cures or the medicines to help us supposedly deal or cope with climate change. Do this or comply with that so we, the experts, can control the weather. That's the basic premise of these climate change policies. And I can tell you the consequences of the medicine or the cures that are being implemented are significantly worse and will have materially worse impacts for economies and quality of life of citizens all across this globe than the actual symptoms or ailments of climate change, whether they're legitimate or whether they're manufactured or imagined. So let's go through the different ways and count the ways that the negative consequences will accrue with respect to many of the popular sort of features of climate policies these days. And I'm gonna start with the basic premise of why these policies are needed, which is the carbon dioxide emissions that would accrue from following through on net zero plans tied largely to things like wind and solar on the grid and electric vehicles for transportation, um, that all three of those different forms of energy or transport, they're zero carbon. They have zero CO2 emissions. Well, the reality is that they carry substantial carbon footprints And they have egregious carbon dioxide emissions. And it really goes back and ties to just a simple development chain, each step in a supply chain, so to speak, that you need to follow through on to have a solar panel or a wind turbine or an electric vehicle either transport you a mile in the case of the latter or to generate a kilowatt hour of electricity in the case of the former. So think through that supply chain and what needs to happen. First, you need to move and mine a tremendous amount of, for lack of a better term, stuff. And I mean tremendous. And all of that mining and all of that movement of surface area to get to the ore, so to speak, of materials that will be needed, that's going to require substantial amounts of carbon-fueled energy and transportation and equipment, etc., to get accomplished. And most of that, by the way, will happen in faraway lands offshore far from the shores of borders like North America or Europe. Secondly, once you've mined the stuff, you're going to need to concentrate that stuff into purified feedstock components. And that processing, that's going to require even more carbon energy to achieve. And most of that, again, is going to occur in foreign or offshore locations. And then once it's concentrated with respect to the feedstocks, they come together in a manufacturing facility to start building the components for wind turbines and solar panels and EV batteries. And those factories most typically are gonna be powered by carbon-based energy, in many instances, coal-fired electricity and coal-fired power. Then all those components need to be transported to places like the United States and Europe where they're going to install those solar panels and wind turbines. So whether it's ships, rails, trucks, planes, you need them all to get those things here. What's going to fuel all of that transportation? typically carbon-based energy. Then once here, you've got to construct the wind turbine towers and the solar panel farms, and you're going to need to use concrete. You're going to have to clear trees for pads, clear trees for right-of-ways. Transportation and transmission lines for the kilowatt hours are going to have to be installed, and those are going to be made of metals. All of those things, all those activities, they carry substantial and significant carbon footprints. And then once everything's installed, you either got to charge the electric vehicle to be able to run, which is going to inevitably use some form of carbon-based electricity, or if the wind doesn't blow or the sun isn't shining, which again is often the case in places like Pennsylvania during the winter, then you're going to need to back up uh, with a plan B for wind and solar on the grid, which again will typically be some form of carbon-based power or electricity. You add all that up, That's once again a very substantial carbon dioxide footprint, much higher than what you see for natural gas fire generation as an example, and much higher than what you'll find for nuclear power generation for sure. And probably in the case of electric vehicles, if you do a legitimate accounting of the carbon and CO2 footprints on a life cycle basis, you probably find that electric vehicles have a materially higher CO2 footprint life cycle wise than even the internal combustion engine or gasoline powered car. So that's perhaps the foundation of why the consequences, they're not going to be positive ones with pursuing sort of the medicine or the cures that have been prescribed by the experts and the elites. But there are many other negative consequences of these prescribed um, sort of solutions or remedies. When you start thinking about the cost impacts, wind and solar are not cheap when you're trying to have that be the foundation of your electric grid. And we're starting to see signs of that across Western economies as we speak. Most of these examples are with respect to offshore and onshore wind projects, which are basically failing or falling or being canceled left and right because of poor economics and inflation that is basically driving the cost of those projects higher and higher. But you're also seeing it with general inflation as well. And it's no coincidence that general inflation is raging across the planet these days. And at about the same time, all of the large economies and societies have started to embark on these net zero types of policies tied to tackling climate change. Again, far from a coincidence. One causes the other. If you increase the cost of energy and you create scarcity with respect to cheap energy and you reduce the reliability of energy, all those things together are going to touch basically the cost of everything else in society because everything else utilizes energy. Thus, inflation starts to rage. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Now, none of this is going to be good news for consumers or the uh, the middle class or business owners or businesses themselves. And those are headwinds that are going to have a whole host of negative consequences. Balance of trade, by the way, that's gonna suffer for places like the EU and for places like the United States, because places like China, or nations like China, they have already achieved, built, constructed, effectively a stranglehold on the supply chains for all the steps that we just went through with regard to what it takes to manufacture an electric vehicle or a wind turbine or a solar farm. Then there's the geopolitical sort of component to this, which is massively important. And just looking around the world today, a dash to wind and solar and EVs, without thinking things through, And without running some simple math, it's going to enable a bunch of bad actors across the map. Bad actors like who? Like Russia, because they feel that they will have energy leverage over places like Europe. Now, how did that leverage happen? Well, again, Europe pursued these net zero policies. They purposely, consciously shut down their domestic energy sources like natural gas and nuclear. Then they made a mad dash into the arms of wind and solar at scale. Wind and solar have failed to deliver to anything close to what was hoped for, so something needs to fill that energy imbalance in Europe. And what was filling it increasingly were things like Russian natural gas through pipelines coming from Russia. Putin understood that Russia saw a strategic lever in the form of energy, and that emboldened, whether it be Putin or Russia as a nation, to go do things like invade Ukraine, not once, I'll remind you, but twice We've seen it with China, again, leverage that's been sort of gifted to them through our policies, climate policies of the West, and now China controls the supply chains when it comes to wind and solar and EVs that we just walked through. So China eyes up and sizes up Taiwan, and don't think for a minute that energy policies aren't making it more confident, China more confident, with respect to what it might do aggressively versus being less confident. And then we see the same dynamic again with places like Iran. No coincidence that energy volatility and energy chaos for energy availability and pricing, they've reared their heads at the same time climate policies have been embarked upon that increase the price of things like oil, which then strengthens in Iran and resurrects an OPEC. Speaking of OPEC, a rational assessment, there's that word again, rational, of the private sector in, say, the United States, it exposes an amazing truth. That with the shale revolution, OPEC was slayed. It was put to bed once and for all. But then the energy transition and the climate alarmist movement through its climate policies, those things have resurrected OPEC. And an entity like Iran reaps the benefits of that through its balance of trade. And then Iran uses that funding to then fund entities like Hamas on top of it. Yeah, we now need Iranian oil to flow. We need Middle Eastern oil to flow to try to keep the price of oil down at least in the short term because of our own climate policies. So we make all kinds of concessions to Iran and remove sanctions and send them pallets of cash in that entire debacle. Again, providing more funding to who? To entities like Hamas. And then we see what Hamas does when given the chance. And now we're seeing even Venezuela sort of catching on to what's going on with its newfound energy leverage. Venezuela has been gifted new energy leverage when it's looking at its nearby neighbor, Guiana, and it sees a gigantic oil reserve there and says, hmm, that's the future. That's going to be valuable. We think we want that for Venezuela itself. And now Venezuela is already starting to beat the drums of war in South America, of all places. So we know geopolitically this is a disaster as well when it comes to climate policies, But the biggest negative consequence that I see out there is, without a doubt, what's going to happen to individuals living in a developing world today that currently don't have access to reliable, affordable energy. Today, the reality for those individuals is that life is far from pleasant. It's frankly brutal. And the sooner those individuals get access to reliable, affordable energy, the better for them in ways that we can only begin to imagine. And we should be thankful that we're in that position. In these net zero plans and climate policies of the climate alarmist crowd and the code red crowd, that way of thinking, it's ensuring that the time that those individuals and the billions in their numbers get to reliable, affordable energy is going to be pushed out indefinitely and into the far future. What gives us or our experts or elites the moral authority to think that we've got the right to do that? So just some consequences, as I said, to walk through there in terms of what we just uh, reviewed and discussed. You add them all up, it's pretty clear we're on the wrong path when it comes to energy policies and climate policies. What's really strange about this is if you sort of put this in the context of a medical analogy, this would be like us having some sort of ailment and we go to the doctor and the doctor tells us, "Okay, I know what's ailing you and I've got the cure. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to use any modern pharmaceuticals, no um, drugs, no technology, modern technology, no medical imaging, no state-of-the-art surgical procedures. We're going to let go of all of those. In fact, we are going to ban those. We're going to outlaw them. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to put you on the table over there, and we're going to attach dozens of leeches to your body to drain the disease from your bloodstream, just like we did, you know, what, 200 years ago. Now, if a doctor did that, they would lose their medical license and they would be having to hire a whole team of defense attorneys to get ready for tort litigation. And that should be what they were being preparing for, what would happen to them with respect to consequence. But when our elites and experts, they prescribe basically the same giant leap backward to the obsolete, Into the inferior, when it comes to energy and climate policies, we all follow along, like it's some sort of sage advice, and it's the smartest thing that we've ever heard, which of course is ridiculous. This is a giant regression backward to what's already been proven to be obsolete and inefficient and a less superior set of options or experiences. Think about it. I mean, electric vehicles, they've been around for a long time, say 100 years, and there's a reason why economies, consumer societies, they've all moved away from electric vehicles toward the internal combustion engine. The internal combustion engine vehicle, it's superior from a product perspective, experience perspective, for a whole bunch of reasons. And, you know, we've had windmills in this world for even longer. Once again, we've moved away from them for very good reason or reasons. The grids advanced to the point where wind power and wind generated electricity, it's obsolete and inefficient, and inferior. Now, we all know this is ridiculous in the end because we've got a proof point. The preachers, the experts out there, the ones that shout the loudest about the need for these poor climate policies and energy policies, they refuse to practice what they preach themselves. You see a massive amount of hypocrisy going on out there. And why is that? Because they don't want their quality of life to be harmed or eroded any more than we do. So that's why you see, let's say, the United Nations Secretary General, who holds all these confabs year after year across all of these exotic locales where tens of thousands of attendees show up for a meeting, and cumulatively, the carbon dioxide footprint of that confab is enormous, right? That's why you see our self-proclaimed climate czar, and I always attach with that, by the way, our unelected climate czar who then, when giving speeches, goes from location to location or conference to conference via charter jet. That's why you see a Hollywood movie star who fancies himself quite the geopolitical and ecological warrior, making movies about climate change. You see him going to and from different ports of call on a giant carbon dioxide spewing yacht. They all know what the math tells us, which is that these prescriptions and these medicines and these cures... They're just the opposite. And don't get me started on rock stars who fancy themselves as environmentalists. We know there's more than a few out there. Think about the carbon footprint of a rock tour. Dozens of cities, charter jets for the musicians, hundreds of thousands of cumulative attendees who all need to travel to and from the venues, the light show running off of the grid, 18 wheelers hauling around massive stages, all the food at the concessions, the workers to and from each event, On and on, down to the lighting up and illuminating of smartphones during the ballad. If a rock star was a true Code Red believer, he or she would not tour. End of story. Closing time, I suppose, for episode 141. I like how we were able to cover the medicines and cures of the Code Red crowd and how those remedies to the ailment of climate change are worse, much worse, than the condition. And speaking of rock stars that we just discussed... How about we close by talking about the first president of the United States to enjoy rock star status? Who do you think that was? Well, it happened to be the youngest to ever take the oath of office for the presidency. So who was the youngest president that enjoyed rock star status? Well, who do you think that was? Well, it was before President Obama, you millennials, and it was before JFK, you boomers someone before him, someone, in fact, way before there was even rock music. I'm talking about President Roosevelt, not FDR. He was more elite socialite and socialist than rock star, but his predecessor and distant cousin, T.R., Teddy Roosevelt. Now, Teddy R., he took office at the age of 42 years, 322 days in 1901. And I've been exploring that period of American history of late, which you might have noticed the past month or two of episodes when you look at the content. And Teddy Roosevelt, T.R., plays prominent as being a key piece of and a great image of that time. He had personality squared. And here are some popular descriptions of President T.R. back in the day. A steam engine in trousers. Having a violent and spasmodic mind. The typical American. A foreign visitor to the White House after meeting Teddy Roosevelt quipped, Do you know the two most extraordinary things I've seen in your country, Niagara Falls and the President of the United States, both great wonders of nature? Excellent. How about this description? You go to the White House, you shake hands with Roosevelt and hear him talk and then go home to wring the personality out of your clothes. What's also interesting of Roosevelt is how he overcame physical hardship, almost willing his body into shape, and creating that image he had of aggressive physical presence. He worked in the Wild West, he went to the Amazon, of course he was a Rough Rider, the leader of that gang in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. Um, He became an advocate for what he called the strenuous life, despite his physical ailments and challenges. And by the way, there's a book by that title that consists of his speeches and views on a life well-lived. And yes, he did read and write a lot. Thousands of letters he penned, dozens of books. And oh, did you know that T.R. was the person who came up with the name White House? He did. And from the executive mansion, he used what he called the bully pulpit to do his job and effectuate his policies. Now, he called his domestic programs the Square Deal. His cousin, of course, decades later, would perhaps appropriate that to an extent with the New Deal. I like TR and his personality, um, but I'm not a huge fan of his policies when he was president. Too much government intervention for my libertarian leanings. Nothing like the uh, New Deal or Woodrow Wilson, mind you. He wasn't that bad, but more hands-on with government and the administrative states rather than letting people in commerce alone. But I love him. And whether you love his personality or you you don't like it, no one could deny that he was a force of nature. And we could use that type of energy in D.C., don't you think, to bring America back to the fore where the world needs us? Not sure we'll get that in November, no matter who's ending up running or who becomes president. But here's the hoping. Rock on, constant listeners, but always, of course, at an acceptable decibel level.